Hey everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Uh, if you like what you hear, please, please, please consider jumping over to iTunes and, and leaving a review. I would be most grateful. Um, so today we're talking about stool analysis, functional stool analysis with uh, somebody I've been working with for, you know, most of my career. I know I have the privilege of talking to a lot of my friends and, and, and today uh, we're going to be talking to Tony Hoffman, who um, you probably know as the founder of Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory, but really he goes way, way, way back and he's a good friend and he's got just loads and loads of behind the scene laboratory pearls as well as, you know, really clinically friendly um, tools and pearls for us. So anyway, let me give you some of his background and we'll jump right in. Uh, Tony started his career in the integrative laboratory industry over 20 years ago, first as a laboratory tech in microbiology, then moving into technical support sales and finally business development. Tony was at the forefront of the planning, management, and launch of four successful stool analysis labs uh, and with ownership in two of them before he founded Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. His experience spans every aspect of laboratory operations from the laboratory bench to the CEO's desk. Tony's lectured and supported physicians around the world in understanding the utility and interpretation of stool testing. He's an expert in the ecology of the gastrointestinal microbiome uh, as measured both by traditional culture techniques and next generation DNA analysis. This broad base and depth of knowledge has given Tony a unique perspective into the needs of clinicians and has guided him in the development of cutting-edge test profiles for Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. Uh, Tony, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's just really great to talk to you. And I want to say this bio that you've constructed is really spot on. I mean, your background is extraordinary. And one of the things that I've loved about you forever is that you've got a really savvy tech background. And, you know, we've honestly, we've spent the last half an hour just catching up. Um, and, but you always translate that into something that's clinically useful. And you, you and I know, know each other because we both were at Metametrics together and I was steeped in lab, but now I'm wearing my clinician's hat. And I find that I appreciate your ability to bridge, you know, all that much more as I sit in, you know, the clinician chair more often than not. Can you just, let me just, I'm, I know I'm yapping too much here, but I want you to just give me a run through of a little bit of your background. Uh, you've been doing this for a really long time and you started with culture and now you're in, you know, next, next generation DNA analysis. So just, just give us a little historical tour uh, before we jump into the rest of the podcast. Well, sure. I mean, I started as a lab tech, you know, in a hospital setting and that didn't last long um, and ended up at, uh, you know, uh, back then Great Smokies, which is now Genova um, in, in Asheville, where I grew up. And uh, yeah, so microbiology when I was in school was my favorite uh, class. Um, I don't know a lot of people that say that, but I really enjoyed it and I was, I was good at it. So if you excel at something, you really, you know, uh, makes it a lot easier. Um, so initially, of course, you start with, you know, you were talking about 25 years ago, start with, uh, <laughs> you know, culture and microscopy, because that was the technology that was out. We had some EIA tests, you know, um, that are, are useful and, and needed or certainly were back then. 
uh, to help identify some pathogens a little bit better, et cetera. But um, that was a technology. And uh, so, you know, you do the best you can with the technology you have. Um, over the years, though, you know, the technology has changed quite a bit. And you can't always just jump on a tech platform, but you certainly, you know, look for changes. But so anyways, worked, worked in, in the laboratory, uh, chemistry, uh, microbiology, parasitology, uh, went on tech to support, as you mentioned. Um, but I always, I've always just had this uh, desire to teach. You know, I like teaching people. So I think that kind of goes towards what you were saying that, you know, I, I do a fairly good job of of taking some complex things and inflating them out, you know, in, in, in easier to use format that uh, um, has served me well. And I know that's a strength, so I play to it, right? That's a strength of mine. So, right. But uh, so I've worked in multiple labs and, and because of the technology, because I'm a lab tech also, I, I understand what goes on in the laboratory. So, um, and I always stay up on it. I haven't sat at the bench in, in years, but I know the technology and I keep up with the technology and that's, that's helped also, right? Mm-hmm. As we move forward and, in, in, in life and changes in technology, et cetera. Um, you know, bridging all that together. And, and it's just a desire, a passion of mine too, to always see if we can find the best test that we can produce and usable, yeah. Yeah. Um, friendly to a practitioner. That's really what it comes down to. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, compl- I agree with you. And I think, so, you know, one of the, let me just say one of the things that Tony and I were talking about off air is um, is sort of a microbiome, a broad microbiome analysis versus a clinician diagnostic tool. And that's how he differentiates what Diagnostic Solution is doing as compared to, say, you know, a company like Ubiome that's really doing, you know, casting a wide net around the, around the microbiome. Uh, so, he would describe that test as like a, as a wellness investigation, maybe something you do sort of at the end of the clinical journey um, or somebody, you know, if you're, if you're working with patients uh, with a more wellness bend that he, he, he was just stating that he thinks that tool would be, would be really useful. Whereas for most of us clinicians actively working with people, people with tough guts and we see incredibly tough guts these days, you know, DSL is really, a clinician diagnostic tool. And Tony, that just that little soundbite really crystallized, you know, two of these stool panels that we're sort of debating amongst each other of, you know, which one to use. And and I do find DSL to be, you know, it's just really user friendly. And I want you, you guys are growing by leaps and bounds. Um, and I know 2018 was a really amazing growth year for you. I know you've adopted some advanced technology, um, and you've recently transitioned into a whole new type of PCR. Can you talk to me about some of the technological updates going on over there? Sure. So maybe, you know, maybe a little background because, you know, understanding a technology and what it's really capable of doing it and using the technology for what it's actually capable of doing is, is the most important thing, right? And so there's multiple different technologies for, for, you know, looking for bugs and finding them, some better than others. And utility of, of, a, of a method is important. So overall, we're talking about there's culture and microscopy out there. Some right. advances have been made to the identification of the organisms that they culture uh, by using MALDI-TOF, um, mm-hmm. which looks at proteins and DNA to try to identify an organism. But it's okay. still 
it's you still have to grow the bug and there's you know there's limitations with with culture on on growing a bug because that organism has been pulled from the um microbiome of the host yes. where it's got a very set nutritional uh diet based on you know the host diet and and its neighbors that are also feeding those bugs and it has to transport the lab and it doesn't like to grow um so we talk about that a lot people ask us culture versus dna um and so you know you could play something and you've probably seen this on culture technology uh you play something you get a no growth for lactobacillus or a no growth e coli and yeah. you, you just know it's that it's not remiss of lactobacillus e coli it's not negative they just yes. couldn't get it to grow right and then you can't quantitate that right so what does a three plus mean um or a four plus right and it really doesn't tell you how much something's there. So we really need to know, because ultimately it's about overgrowth. If I were to take a pound of stool and measure every single bug in there, we can find almost anything in very trace amounts. Yeah. It, it, organisms don't become a problem until they become an overgrowth, until they're at a high enough threshold. So that's important. So mm -hmm. quantitation is key in, mm -hmm. in, in helping to diagnose something. So, and we'll come back to that in just a second, but now moving on to other methods, which would be something like a next-gen sequencing, when you're talking about doing a microbiome panel, that's another DNA-type method uh, where they go and look at the sequence, they, they, they pull all the genomes apart and they look at the sequences there and find a sequence that tells them what organism is present, right? And it, they're, they're really not truly quantitative, they're probably semi-quantitative methods, yeah. so they can give you a good rough uh, really, you know, and they're getting better and better. Technology is always changing, but they give you a good estimation of balance of flora across a wide range of them, but they still limit in what they can find. Uh, ultimately, you know, if, if you're missing an organism there, it doesn't mean it's necessarily negative or they just couldn't, you know, get it to show up. So there's some limitations. It's a great technology. It's an emerging one. It's going to get better and better over time to look at more, more and more organisms all at once. But in the realm of a patient who comes in and presents with a set of symptoms that yes. you know relate back to the gut in, in, in to a specific set of types of organisms, which is what we do, you need to be able to quantitate that and, yeah. and really determine whether or not that organism is at a level or any organisms, certain groups of organisms are at levels that would contribute to symptoms or disease. So the GI map profile, that we run at DSL is really centered around patients, you know, that, that present with, with chronic and, and more towards acute symptoms or ongoing disease processes that, you know, you want to uh, make sure you're not getting contributing, you know, contributing to their symptoms from the GI. That's the type of assay that we've developed. And in the technology, qPCR, quantitative PCR, also known as real-time PCR, mm -hmm. you get a very, quantitative number. You can measure down to a cell per gram, right? I mean, that low. So yeah. it's very sensitive, uh, both on the low and the high end. Um, so you can get real true numbers and you can understand whether or not the pseudomonas that grew out at four plus, you don't know if that really is there in a high amount. And, and that's a technology issue barrier. It may only be at, you know, what we would report as E1 or 10 to the first, which might be, you know, 20 cells per gram, in which case now we know that pseudomonas, but it might have grown to a four plus on a, on a plate in the laboratory. And uh, that's hard to, hard to show in, in a uh, audio recording, but um, ultimately 
that makes a decision because now you know to move to something else. And so that's why we've grown and been very successful um, in technology. But, but certainly, you know, there was a time and a place for culture and microscopy. Um, but, you know, ultimately, if you look in any research over the past 20, 25 years, you can't find any research that's been done using that technology. So no real outcome studies or, or research has been done using culture te technology for a reason. Yes. We've had DNA for a long time. It's just a matter of harnessing DNA technology in such a way that you can get actual results to All right. the clinician. Yep. Listen, I want to just summarize it and then you, you know, just correct me if I'm wrong or add color commentary, but I just want to summarize what you said because I think it's incredibly important. Okay, so you talked about next-gen sequencing. They're using this for the sort of the broad investigation into the microbiome overall. So these are the microbiome tests. And yep. then, and, and so it's, but, it, but they're semi-quantitative. So you're not going to really be able to determine, at least at this point in the development of these particular assays, you're not going to be able to determine where the present, whether the presence of a particular organism is at levels that we need to be alarmed about as clinicians, or we need to get in there mm -hmm. and do interventions around. So that's the microbiome analysis, which you think is useful and will continue to evolve and is a good wellness check. So I, I like that. Um, and then you talked about culture and the, the fundamental challenge with culture, you outlined two things. One is that it's an artificial environment, even in transport. So the, so the, 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 um, micro, the, the microbes need to be viable through the transport journey and then at the lab where they're plated and they're grown out in an artificial environment that doesn't reflect the host um, gastrointestinal tract, so the, the host microbiome as well as what the host diet, et cetera. Um, yeah. So because of this, there are multiple steps in the journey of the culture assay for error. And then the end result could be that X amount grows out in a plate and that's reported and that doesn't actually reflect what's going on in the host. Um, Yep. And then, okay, got it. Okay, and, and so now you guys have moved into quantitative PCR. Where so the so since this test is a clinician diagnostic tool, the DSL test, you're, you've actually selected organisms and um, associated biomarkers that are clinically irrelevant or it's clinically relevant to determine what's going on with the gut and the focus using the quantitative PCR is to actually be able to tell quantitatively what's going on and whether this is relevant uh, to what's happening clinically in the patient. Yep. All right. That's and, absolutely correct. It's all about awesome. the overgrowth. It's all about how much of an organism there in an opportunistic type organism, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's about how much, right? Well, let me ask you this then. Let me ask you this because we run DSL here all the time. So we've looked at, I've looked at many, many, many reports. And if I see somebody who's got, so you actually have reference ranges for some of the pathogens. So I can see evidence of C. diff. I can see toxin A or toxin B, which is like, womp, womp, you know, it's alarm bells ring when you see this, but you might actually pick up toxin A or B, you know, below what you consider to be an acceptable finding. And, you know, just comment on that my my alarm right. isn't ringing i'm 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 okay with this well no i i think you know uh understanding you know the reference ranges for different types of organisms is important ultimately the pathogens that we report the true pathogens overt pathogens that you see on page one of our report 
the call range, the high call range, actually correlates back to uh, another previous DNA method we ran that was an FDA-approved method that only called positive when an organism was a high enough threshold to correlate to disease, right? Okay. So they, they spent a lot of time, energy, and money to correlate what level should an organism be at or, or most commonly at when patients present with disease, in most cases, diarrhea, okay. right? Yeah, right, right. And so the high calls there are for that. But there's a couple of things that go on, um, and, and, and those were only positive negative. You couldn't even report a number, right? So we could see it. We knew it was there. We used to run this method, and we knew it was there, uh, but it was just below. What if it was only 3% below that threshold? We literally were not allowed to call it positive right? because it was 3% below the, the cutoff level where they say it's predictive of disease, positive, right. negative, predictive value. So right. ultimately, as a clinician – especially in functional medicine, yeah. do you want to know if a, if a patient has you know, a, well, say 10 to the second, if, you know, a C. difficile yeah. in their microbiome, you know, as a resident communal population, which is another key thing that we teach all the time. When an organism gets to about 10 to the second, E2, mm -hmm. um, it's most likely at that point a resident communal population. It's going to stick wow. around, right? You're not going to you're not going to overgrow it in your microbiome because we get exposures every day. If mm -hmm. you're eating and breathing, you're exposed to 80% of what's on our test. And again, we already said they're all there in trace amounts all the time, so it's about the overgrowth. So yes. C diff is a great example. We talk about C diff a lot because there's two things that go on there. Number one, how much is there? If you get over the reference range and it flags high. Now you're at the level that you would likely have diarrheal disease if the organism were actively producing toxin. Got it. So we, we measure the SNP on the genome of C. difficile for toxin B or toxin A, the SNP. We're not measuring the toxin, which is another important thing to note, but still important in, in my mind, and our clinicians tend to agree once they understand that gene could turn on at any point in time and you become symptomatic or diseased. And in fact, in administration of antibiotics will cause that to happen. That's why you get antibiotic associated diarrheal disease from yeah. C. diff. Yeah. And it was already there, right. uh, different than nosocomial going into a hospital where you require, but it was already yeah. there. Yeah. And now it's going to grow faster and part of turning that gene on and producing that toxin uh, which causes inflammation for us, right, and diarrhea, uh, sure. allows it to grow. So it's, it's a protective mechanism and a growth mechanism for the organism. But I want to know if it's there because I want to get it out of my microbiome or at least get it you know, that undetectable level again uh, so that I don't have disease if I, you know, happen to have to go on an antibiotic or some other influence that can trigger that gene to turn on or that SNP to turn on and causing yeah. symptoms. So, all right. So yeah, me, it, it's in, that's the chronic patient, right? Your chronic patient comes in and has it there and that's different than acute, right? Yes. Uh, labs now, hospital labs all around the country can run a pathogens panel by DNA yeah. on an acute patient. So we don't expect that to come into our laboratory as much. Uh, they can get that almost anywhere. There's probably 200 locations that run a DNA test for, for microbial pathogens now. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think we can get it through standard reference labs. Okay, so listen, I want to summarize because you just made an outrageously a bunch of really important points. So 
the reference ranges, the way that we're using the reference ranges on the pathogen, at least the pathogen section, you know, we can talk about the rest of the test, but is, you know, not that it's normal if it's below the reference range. Back, basically what you've said is the reference range is, is uh, a, a cutoff where disease is likely to be seen if above. So C. diff colitis, if it's above. However, I'm actually looking at a patient's result in front of me now, and she happens to have Vibrio below the reference, mm -hmm. below the reference limit, but she's got Vibrio um, hanging out in her, in her gut. It's, uh, it's not bolded. It's not, it's not in red, uh, but there it is. And so what you're saying is in the event of an assault, so this particular patient, um, her gut is actually doing pretty well, but she's got this critter hanging out, but in the, in it, and it's at E to the two or 10 to the two, which yeah. you stated is, um, suggestive of likely colonization. So this is mm -hmm. not just passing through. That's another really important point you made. Like off the cuff, you made this really important point that E to the yeah. two, we should really be flagged about because in the event that she does have an assault on her gut, which, you know, it seems like we all do potentially, this mm -hmm. Vibrio could actually rise to becoming um, a real a pathogenic player. So in my work with this right. patient, I want to be working on disappearing it. However, because she doesn't, she's not in an acute disease state right now, I don't necessarily need to go in there with big gun interventions. I can do this, as yep. you pointed out earlier in our conversation, diet being this massive leverage point that could be one of my tools, making sure it's buried and making sure she's got pre and probiotic foods, et cetera. And, um, you know, maybe I would use some botanical combination interventions. I don't need to go in there with heavy hitters though. I'm assuming I want your feedback on that, right. but is this the correct way to interpret the pathogen section? Well, yeah, I mean, and obviously we would take the entire report into, into account, right? Because right. there might be another reason why you might need to go in there with, yes. you know, botanical antimicrobials and which would be yes. appropriate for any of the bacteria on page one also, in which case then, then you've already made a determination that that's the route you're going. But in absence of any other problems uh, foreseen on, on a report, and if it's just isolated to that Vibrio at 10 to the second, yeah, you might want to do pre-probiotics, diet, whatever, um, as an intervention. Um, generally, some of that's going to be determined based on looking at some of the normal flora too to see, you know, is that in balance or out of balance? Right, you know, right. you know each, in, each organism is a little bit different. In the case of Vibrio, uh, we don't see it all that often, uh, why it's not that common in the U.S. and it is in shellfish. Uh, that's the most common way we get inoculated with, with Vibrio. Huh. And frequently, you know, think about this too. If, if somebody has uh, you know, mild diarrhea, uh, similar, you know, maybe from like food poisoning in the case of Vibrio, right? But they don't have full blown diarrhea, but they, they have a couple bouts of loose stool. They may not have had much of inoculation in the body's defenses to create diarrhea to flush it out. And that may be on the way down. 10 to the second is that area where you kind of go, you know, E2 is where you kind of think, hmm, this may be a resident communal population. Most likely it is. Um, especially in a chronic patient. And that's a big differentiation too. When patients walk into your door with chronic symptoms, that microbiome is much more established and in a steady state yeah. than after an episode, right? Whether that be after antibiotics, whether after diarrhea or some other, you know, event that would cause a big fluctuation in their microbiome. So 
thinking this is this is a a key point I make a lot with practitioners is when they walk in, they've been in that steady state and chronic for how long? They got a real stable microbiome, albeit dysbiotic. Yeah, it's stable. Yeah. When you intervene with a diet change, with pre and probiotics, antimicrobials, antibiotics if needed, or or other pharmaceuticals depending on the patient and standard of care, um, now you've disrupted that microbiome purposefully. Yeah. To get an to to hopefully get a, a the outcome you're looking for, which is reestablish steady microbiome that's not dysbiotic, that's yeah. removed of any opportunistics and pathogens and uh, whatever. But that period of time post-intervention that it's in flux, you'll get a lot of ups and downs and bugs for a few weeks until it becomes stable and steady again. So we don't even suggest repeating a test for, for you know for three to six weeks because you have a microbiome in flux. Right. And eventually, and this is just literally due to the fact that you've changed and shifted the amounts of organisms, and your normal flora will get back to where, where it wants to be. And mm -hmm. if you do a good job, you'll get back to where you were, you know, balance of, of, of good microbes to where you were when you're around three or four years old, right, in a, in a balance, a percentage um, when you're healthy. And you so get back to that steady state. Now you have protection, colonization resistance against these overgrowth. Yeah. Um, so. It is important to know how the patient's coming into you, whether they come in acute yes. or, or chronic. And that tells you a little bit more about that microbiome and what you see on a report. So there's many facets that you have to take. So it's not like you can just look at a report and go, hey, there's C. diff tox B at, at 4.3 E4 disease. Well, no. Is there inflammation? The calprotectin looks normal and they don't have diarrhea. They have the potential for disease and, and much higher potential than somebody without it, right? Mm -hmm. So you intervene a little differently. Right, and right, if somebody right. has acute diarrhea, you know. So, A, we're taking clinical history into um, big, you know, primary consideration. B, we're looking not just at the pathogens, mm -hmm. but what are the um, predominant? What are the good bugs looking like? Do we see evidence of inflammation going on? Do we see, you know, pancreatic exocrine function happening? Do we see, mm -hmm. you know, sufficiently? So, you it's... You know, it's a it's a it's a comprehensive stool analysis. We need to look at the whole picture. Um, I yeah. get it. And as you pointed out earlier, generally speaking, when we're using this particular tool, we're looking at folks who've got um, who've got chronic issues happening. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So let me. Uh, and so, I mean, and I guess again, as you pointed out looking at this entire picture is going to help dictate uh, what type of interventions we're going to use. And the other thing that you pointed out is that it's just not worth it to retest while we're changing the guards, while we're really, really actively changing the microflora. I would imagine things could show up crazy during that sort of, you said three to six weeks, but I think it can be even longer. You know, you could actually, sure. so yeah. if you retested yeah. while you're, you know, mid therapy, you, I, I would imagine you could get some pretty crazy results. Listen, so, oh, yeah. dur so yeah. during that time when we're seeing massive flux in the microbiome, this would be obviously when we might be preparing the patient for die-off uh, presentation. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, it, and is that really common in your experience when you're changing the guards like that? Um, or is, is die-off something that can potentially be avoided? I know this is a little sidebar of a question, but I'm curious what your opinion is. Yeah. On. 
I mean, I don't think you can fully avoid die-off um, without having a prolonged treatment approach, right? Uh, you can do things to mitigate the effects of die-off, and, and every patient's a little different. Some people react to die-off much, much stronger uh, than others. Um, okay. And literally, die-off is, is the toxins within the cells that get released as they're, as they're killed, and the, and the cell wall disrupts, right? And some of that uh, portion of that inter interacts with mucosa, some of that you know, comes through the mucosa, and uh, can cause obvious uh, symptoms. So there's not, a, depending on the treatment approach, you're gonna get more die off with a, with a stronger treatment, right? You go in with an antibiotic or an antifungal in the case of, you know, a, a pharmaceutical antifungal in the case of, you know, like candida, which is notorious for die off effect, uh, you're likely to get m much stronger symptoms of die off with that than you would say with a botanical. Botanicals don't work quite the same. They are fairly caustic and, and chemotaxic to the organisms, uh, but they do it at a much slower rate and uh, kind of shift the metabolism of organisms partially too. So it's not all about killing. Um, it's, it's about slowing down their metabolism, making them not function as well, and let your body kind of overcome things. So there's, you know, there's, there's different approaches needed for different patients, uh, whether you can prescribe or not. Uh, ultimately, if a patient's you know symptoms are are manageable and you can go botanically, that's a good route to go. But then you also have to think about how compliant the patient going to be because these yeah. treatments can take a lot longer. Right. You know, so there's always there's always meeting the patient where they are um, yeah. and and what their needs are. If you already know they're sensitive a lot and they've had die off of you know from SIBO or they've had die off from from candida or something, then you know you might want to prep them for it and you know, take it slower. Um, there's not a lot you can do when you're trying to remove. I mean, you know, you're going to, you have to kill some organisms, right? And uh, so it just depends on what their symptoms are. If they get muscle aches, uh, you can use some, some amino acid therapies, right? To help minimize some of those, some detox to help minimize that. So um, it's really, it's really the whole picture. And, and, you know, there's just not a one size fits all to what we do. And that's why we do what we do, right? It's, it's yes. personalized. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it makes yeah. it really satisfying. I mean, it, you know, just listening to you kind of unpack these ideas, it's, you know, we folks listening who are clinicians, you can witness the complexity of our medicine and this is stuff, these are kind of action, you know, decision points that we're making with all of our patients all the time. It's really pretty extraordinary. Listen, I want to ask you a question that I'm asked often and, you know, and, and for which I didn't find a whole lot of data, maybe some, but that is, you know, botanicals having a lasting impact on the predominant microflora um, like mm -hmm. antibiotics do. So we know some research out there on antibiotics can show that they alter the microbiome for, you know, years to, I think, a lifetime has been, has been some of the some of the claims. If I'm not mistaken, you can correct me. You're in the sure. science around. Well, especially if, yeah, but. yeah. No, most especially if, if taken antibiotics have taken in the first two to three years of life, right? There's there's three major negative impacts on, on uh, a person's long term microbiome composition, and and those happen during the first you know three years of right birth. So right, so uh, you know, bottle versus breastfed. Antibiotics during the first three years um, is, is a real big one mm -hmm. um, that can have a long-lasting and cesarean versus vaginal delivery. Mm -hmm. If you have a patient when you're taking a history that has one or more of those negative factors, which would be bottle-fed, C-section, and antibiotics early in life, they are much more likely to have 
of uh, GI events at a higher frequency throughout their lifetime, their microbiome is established in more negative pattern or, or, or just not as diverse. Yeah. And there's long-term studies that show that they end up with GI issues much more frequently. Right. We also know that they also don't reestablish a balance as fast. So those patients are the ones who you may have more trouble with uh, reestablishing that, that homeostasis or colonization resistance uh, out past six weeks, right? right. Because, because they, they have a microbiome that's established. The, the, the good thing and the bad thing about the microbiome is once we establish it in the first two to three, maybe four years tops, uh, that balance, that's our microbiome. So whenever we're healthy, that's approximately where we're going to be. Now we can influence that on a daily basis by, you know, a diet, um, you know, shift it slightly more uh, one way or the other, say, you know, uh, more plant-based diet, the, the bacteria needs are going to be, you know, shifted a little bit up. Uh, more keto diet, the permacutes are going to be shifted a little more up. So we can make these kinds of diet changes to impact ourselves long-term yeah. if we know we have a bad microbiome and we've seen a pattern of it. So there's, there's, there's things we can do. Will botanicals have a long lasting influence? And, and I think you're, I think that it would go back to whether or not they're utilized in the first two to three years of life. I, I don't know. I haven't seen any real yeah. data. My, my, my guess is because botanicals again are not near as hemotoxic and strong yeah. as pharmaceuticals, it would be lessened for sure. But yeah. will it have an impact or not? I, I really don't know the answer to it, but I, I would imagine it wouldn't be near as impactful um, by any stress. So that goes back to kids and, and whether or not to use an antimicrobial or to yeah. avoid, you know, too much oil of oregano during the first couple of years of life. You know, right. yeah, we, we, we kind of shy away from that because we're like, you know, we just don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and you could yeah. use, you know, the whole plant intervention versus just the isolated constituents which are going to sure. exert more of a drug effect. So I think yeah. there's a pretty massive continuum. But into, yeah. if I hear what you're saying correctly, in, when we're thinking about introducing antimicrobials into our adult patients, that we needn't worry too extensively about yeah. negatively and lastingly altering their microbiome. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. Okay. That's correct. Okay. And, you know, going back to kids, I mean, I'm, I would be, I'm concerned about, you know, too much probiotics while they're developing their microbiome. Because again, you're influencing what grows there, what establishes itself um, early on. And, and surrogate probiotics, uh, byproducts of, you know, lactobacillus and bifido um, influence, we know they influence the, uh, the levels of certain organisms. Now, you know, they don't stay, they're not going to become residents, right? They're surrogate, they're, they're going to live you know, three to 14 days or so and, and die off, but their byproducts are going to influence the balance of those microbes. And if you do that too long, then you're going to influence, you know, certain populations to be more established than others. So I think over time, you're going to figure out some designer, you know, studies are going to give us some d designer probiotics and prebiotics to use them on, on infants, right? So we establish a much more balanced, but we're, we're years away from that. But even probiotics might have a negative influence of too much, right? Too much of a good thing. We yeah. also know that and, but, too but, much but, lactobacillus is, you know, you get lactic acidosis in some patients. I mean, we got gastros, there's studies coming out of gastroenterology yes, yes, yes. research that, that suggests, you know, too much of a good thing. So yeah, they have to be used. They're tools. They got to be used appropriately. Yep. All right. So as usual, you just said a whole lot. And I feel like I have to unpack <laughs> it and sort of underline a couple of the things. So sure. A, 
even so you're saying even though i think that there's been some debate as to whether or not probiotics can colonize or not you've basically just said they can they might hang around for a little while but they're not mm -hmm. going to take up permanent residence and as you've pointed out already repeatedly in previous statements we're going to kind of go back to that original blueprint that we yeah. created um yeah. how, so even though they don't colonize they're going to be manipulating the microbiome there's going to be various um, metabolites being produced that can be problem players. And so what you said, which is kind of a huge statement, Tony, is that we want to be mindful about introducing probiotics into youngsters, at least for long term, because we don't really entirely understand how some of the metabolites from these probiotics or how they might influence the core microbiome um, will mm -hmm. play out later on, which is really kind yeah. of remarkable, because as you know, I've got a baby at home I have on yeah, probiotics sure. and I'm like oh my god so I've got her on an infant formula but I'm like okay note to self let me yeah, yeah let yeah. me wrap this up well, I mean it's too much <laughs> right it, it's it's it, you know ultimately it comes down to too much of a good thing right yeah, yeah. can be bad yeah you know and, and and there's moderation and there's thought you know given I don't think probiotics as a general rule and in, in infants is, are bad but if you're yeah. if you're trying to manipulate the microbiome which is how we use probiotics either you know post antimicrobial uh, to try to manipulate the growth. We're just trying to increase the growth rate of good flora faster first to win, right? And balance out. But, you know, you're developing your microbiome. You're probably better off, you know, Leonard playing the, in, in the dirt and, yeah, uh, right. and, and get exposures and build an immune system, yes, which yes, is also yes. developing at the same time. Yes, and now that we understand right. the interaction of our microbiome with our own immune system, yes, it, it's, it's, it's complex and it's ongoing long term. Right. Our microbiome even influences our IgA output. Yes. And this is really cool to protect itself. So our good microbiome, the good uh, commensal bugs, help us generate and produce secretory IgA on a constant basis. Not because it helps us, it protects them. It yeah. protects them and allows them to stay, you know, adhere and colonize the mucosa by forcing us to produce all this IgA to coat every other bug we are ingesting every day, right? So that it's coated with IgA and now it cannot dis disrupt the, you know, the, the commensal that's there on the, on the mucosa. It's a protective measure for itself, but it helps influence our uh, immune responses too. So it's pretty complex. And, and I think we're, you know, as a, our understanding of the microbiome has grown tremendously in the past, you know, 10 years, especially. Yeah. Um, and some of that's technology. Uh, obviously, that's really yeah. led to, to our understanding of it. But we're still at the tip of it. I mean, yeah. I, I would suggest that, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to be having a totally different conversation. Right. Still rooted around our microbiome and the core organisms and everything else. We're going to understand a little bit more of the influence of the microbiome on the host and yes. and the interactions and probably you know that's all going to change. So, right. but, well, but you're think, right. It is. It's it's that moderation. You yeah. know, be mindful. Well, I think your your point is extremely well taken. In fact, I was just reading about this um, UK scientist. I, I his name is 
is is escaping me right now but he's who really who's really you know accusing excessive hygiene in childhood as you know promoting leukemia and, and he really and he feels like he's he's nailed down the mechanism around this there's actually two mutations one that's in utero but the what one that happens early on and those two together um allow for the occurrence of of childhood leukemia and and uh, you know, what's extraordinary is that the antidote to this, as far as he's concerned, is, you know, as you said, you know, exposure to dirt, you know, playing, like backing off of this hyper hygienic world that we've lived in. So just very interesting stuff. Uh, so your point is yeah. well taken. Even as we sit in this breakthrough, break, breakneck technological revolution, we still go back to these fundamental precepts of you know, diet of exposure of building our immune system by just sort of engaging in life. I mean, that's, that's not going to yeah. change what you just said, Tony. Yeah. And I wanted to yeah, also no, we back had the up surveillance, right? It's yeah. just a difference of we had surveillance data. We knew we didn't build good immune systems without uh, playing in dirt and, and yeah. establishing a good microbiome. But yeah. now we're learning the mechanisms and how that actually works. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah. The core that's things right. are not changing. That's exactly right. right. It's just our understanding and how we modulate those. Uh, is changing rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting. And I just wanted to underline one point that you made previously, circle back to it, because I think it's a really important one. Mo many, many, many of our patients have had gut assaults. Many of our patients yeah. have been, you know, C-section delivered, or they haven't been able to breastfeed for whatever reason, or they've had early antibiotic mm -hmm. exposures. I mean, that's de rigueur in our world today. And so you're sure. pointing out the lasting impact on the microbiome. And we, you know, we treat patients who come with this background all of the time. And I think, you know, we can take heart and just advise accordingly, probably doing stool analysis and, you know, putting attention on the microbiome is just going to be a piece of their journey. Uh, it needn't yep. be uh, anxiety provoking. It's just, you know, it's like we're it's it's just one of the pieces that they're going to have to kind of nurture along. Like some of us, yeah. you know, I come into yeah. the planet with a, with a familial background of, you know, diabetes and heart disease. So one of the things I need to yeah. do in my life journey here is be mindful of uh, excess carbohydrates. And, you know, it's just, it's just my background. And so likewise, this would be that yeah. individual, just a piece of their core journey. Okay. Yep, well, exactly. I want, I, I want to, um, I just want to talk about the the test a little bit more because you've done some really it's just you've added some really cool stuff and you've got a comprehensive h pylori section now like you have built that out big time so talk to me about that and you know what makes it what makes it so unique yeah so h pylori it's it's one of the organisms i love talking about um it's it, it, unfortunately h pylori is a a uh, notoriously bad guy who can wear many different hats and present with many different symptoms, right? Um, and we're learning now why that is. And so because we're using qPCR technology, a, you know, uh, PCR technology, we can actually look at SNPs, like we're talking about C. diff. We can look at SNPs on the genome of H. pylori. Interesting. And, and, and measure out what's called virulence factors. And virulence factors are literally just a SNP on their genome for the ability to produce a particular toxin, protein, what have you. But each of those individual virulence factors uh, may either contribute to certain diseases or, or, or cause certain symptoms. Um, and so 
H. pylori is capable of a multitude of different types of symptoms. And there's, it's compounded even, even further. Not only do they have these abilities. If you think about E. coli here, here let me make a correlation. E. coli, we talk about E. coli as enterohemorrhagic, um, you know, enteropathogenic. Literally what that is is SNPs on the genome of an E. coli before we knew that they were SNPs, right? So they got named based on disease type rather than what we do with H. pylori. In H. pylori, we actually named the virulence factor versus changing the name of the H. pylori enteropathogenic or toxigenic, right? So yeah. the same thing. It's so fast. Uh, e. coli has lots of different SNPs, right? It's, it's diverse just like H. pylori. Wow. And, but H. pylori is compounded. So we have the ability to measure these, these, these virulence factors to predict the potential for a particular uh, symptoms or disease from the H. pylori. Um, just like measuring a SNP on the human genome, we're measuring a SNP on the genome of H. pylori. And so you can get an understanding if the symptoms a patient is presenting with may or may not be from the H. pylori. H. pylori is a little more complex than that. And part of it starts in the colonization of H. pylori, how it colonizes in the stomach. Mm. The exposure to H. pylori is chronic and constant, right? Mm -hmm. We're always exposed. Um, but when it does get into an overgrowth state in the stomach, initial early colonization is usually the body of the stomach. And there, regardless of virulence factors, there it infects the cells that produce HCL and causes hypochlorhydria, low HCL production. And that's the initial colonization most generally, most of the time. And that can last from three to maybe even as much as 24 months. Uh, that you have hypochlorhydria, asymptomatic, no ulcers, no, you know, you don't have acid reflux, you have low acid, um, no gastritis, no gastroenteritis, uh, et cetera, low HCL. Right. Wait, would this During, be, yeah, would mm -hmm. this be like this, the SIBO epidemic that we're in? I mean, would this be the... Well, it's contributing, right? Because, yeah, sure. because H. pylori comes in and colonizes the body of the stomach, causes hypochlorhydria. The now the stomach acid is low, which is yeah. really your only protection in the first half of the small intestine from colonization, right? The acid from the stomach is what, it, it's not competitive like the colon. The colon's competitive. Your normal flora helps you keep things at bay. Your immune system down there helps keep the things at bay. Uh, the first half of the small intestine, most of the small intestine, the populations are determined by the amount of acid you produce. And when, when you get hypochlorhydria, then you get migration up your your small intestine of organisms that normally couldn't live there because now the pH is, is higher and allows it to migrate further and further north. Of course, you're always, you know, swallowing things too. Um, but so yeah, many patients with early colonization of H. pylori develop SIBO. So they end up coming in with SIBO. Yeah. And then we find H. pylori. So this is, and yeah, then this we is look like at the elastase and here's, here's a good thing. Yeah. You can actually look at excrement pancreatic output, look at the elastase we measure Mm -hmm. and get an idea of potentially how far along a patient is with their colonization of H. pylori in the stomach ah. by looking at the elastase. And so if the average patient runs between five and 600, so we'll just say 550, for example, is a, is a normal uh, healthy result for elastase. If that's around 350 or less, they likely have hypochlorhydria. Oh, interesting. That levels, you know, it may not be below the reference range, and that's a kit reference range, and understand yeah, yeah. labs are stuck with certain things we have to do, parameters we have to fall within, right? Um, so around 350 or less, that's suggestive of hypochlorhydria. And 
you can huh. almost see it all. I mean, we see the pattern quite a bit too. Huh. Um, and you and those patients, if I have, if I'm on a call and I like to do this as a new practitioner, just learning the test and I'll look all the way through the test and I'll start talking a little bit and I get to, uh, and I'll say, is your patient experiencing upper GI gas bloating distension postprandial? Uh, and a good chunk of them go, yeah, how'd you know? Right. Well, I just look at the elastase and, and know that probably 75% of the patients with chronic low uh, HCL are going to develop SIBO. It's an eventuality in more so than anything else. If your HCL is too low, you're going to develop it, you know, over time. Yes, it's going to yes. happen. You're exposed yes. to everything. We, you know, yes. So, so that part, and that's the first, you know, first thing that happens with H. pylori. So now you've got hypochlorhydria caused by it that has nothing to do with with a virulence factor it has only to do with where it's colonized in your stomach. Wow. And the next part of H. pylori has nothing to do with virulence factors. So wait, wait, there, wait, wait. Yep. If you have, I, if you, so if H. pylori is present without virulence factors, it's mm -hmm. contributing mm -hmm. to hypochlorhydria and it's a problem. Is that what you it just can be, yeah. It, it, yeah, it, can it be. literally infects the cells in the, the stomach that produce HCL. Okay, so no you virulence factors, but it could still be a problem yep. because yep, correct. You know, I generally look at it as, as, as not, as potentially being a commensal because there was some interesting research out to that effect, but you're actually saying it could usher in hypochondria. And, yeah. Unfortunately, well, let, me, let me just correct something right there, Kara. Yeah, yeah, go Unfortunately, ahead. Unfortunately, when you read literature about it possibly being a commensal, yeah. they don't give you quantitation, right? How much is commensal? Right. What's the normal range of commensal? We right. don't know. And, right. and, and, and actually on a stool test, we can't tell you how much you have in the stomach. Right. You dilute, by the time those cells pass from the stomach and the duodenum through 2,500 grams of fecal matter, they're diluted. Yeah. You know, we're seeing what comes out the other end. So there's limitations to a stool test. This is right. one of them. Right. Right. So we can't, we don't know how much is in the stomach really. Right. But so certainly if you find H. pylori on a stool test, even in amounts of end of the first E1, yeah, you've got a big overgrowth in the stomach, right? Because, yeah. you know, so, so there, H. pylori can cause hypochlorhydria just by infecting the cells of the body in the body of the stomach. Mm -hmm. Then it moves to the antrum where it then has an effect on gastrin output mm -hmm. it increases gastrin specifically gastrin 17 and which increases acid production right and then it also has a negative impact on somatostatin which means you don't counter the gastrin so the acid stays uh, up and you develop hypochlorhydria or i mean excuse me then you develop hyperacidemia increased right. acid now you start presenting with acid reflux and develop GERD that has nothing to do with virulence factors also Right. Right. This is, well, this is so, when you start to see gastritis and gastritis, right, right, right. Due to acids, course. now you have increased acid. Now you normalize your, you know, your elastase now is back to back to normal levels, and uh, now you have a whole right? other set of symptoms. This is compounded further: chronic colonization in the stomach of H. pylori ends up with three to four different strains. So you're colonized by one strain, has no virulence factors left unchecked. You're gonna get two, three more strains eventually, and you know they're going to come in with virulence factors. So now your, your, your symptoms change. Now you develop an ulcer. Why? Because you have virulence factors allowed for an ulcer or gastritis occurs. So 
H. pylori is notoriously bad bug, and I don't really think that there's any commensal amount uh, for an H. pylori uh, that 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 we can measure from a stool test, right? That's pretty fast. You know, so it's yeah, understanding H. pylori and it's it's a nasty bug. It is very pathogenic, and it's going to change over time its pre presentation based on the different strains you end up colonizing. With. Right, 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 right. Yep. Jeez, that's really interesting. Um, so this continuum of H. pylori. So initially hypochlorhydria, yeah. but as it, it as it evolves and moves, um, yeah, into the antrum. Then we're then we're looking at actually a hyperchlorhydric state. And, Are you going to still yeah. see though maldigestion, gas, and bloating? I mean, those things aren't going to resolve, and then you present with those ones dissolve, right? Right, depends on what's causing them, right? You get maldigestion from low acid. Some yeah. of that will resolve when the acid comes back to normal. But now you got high, you know over uh, too much acid. So yeah, yeah, you, you would resume generally. You would presume that you would resume normal exocrine pancreatic output. So right, so you go through a period of maldigestion and then that shifts but keep in mind during those periods your microbiome is shifting this is the other thing that happens with the early onset the early colonization is that low acid creates dysbiosis uh, all the way through the small yeah. intestine which eventually leads to dysbiosis in, in the colon now we know that the ph of the colon is not really determined by the acid from the stomach more by the composition that's there Okay. But if you have shifting populations in your small intestine due to low acid, they're feeding into the colon. So you end up shifting your colon and creating dysbiosis there on a long term, you know, on a chronic basis. So, yeah, now you have, you know, dysbiosis all the way through the colon well, due to so, Ace pylori in the stomach. That's pretty fascinating. Okay. So yeah. Um, yeah. complex, but really the take home yeah. here is that if H. pylori is showing up in a stool test, you can bet that there's a lot in the small yeah. intestines. And if they're not, yeah, if they're not presenting yet, there, there's, it, the progression is going to be uh, through, through those, the, those stages we just discussed. And as far but as the your question is then how do you treat, right? I mean, yeah. then you got standards of care. When do you use a triple quadruple yeah, exactly. therapy? You, want, yeah. you know, um, and people like to think that you can look, oh, it's balance factors. Let me use a, a pharmaceutical. Um, if they're not presenting, I mean, it's really a practitioner's call and meeting the patient where they are. If they aren't presenting with overt symptoms, yeah. You can get rid of H. pylori with a mastic gum-based formulation. You, can. you know, they're pretty effective. 50-60% eradication rate first time, first course. Now that course is longer, compliant patient. But the other side of that is because even pharmaceuticals are only somewhere around 70% effective first yeah. course, right? Well, and it's really so, aggressive if you do it is. like quadruple oh, or triple therapy. It yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah, so, you know, but then there's standard of care. The physicians who have to follow a certain standard of care, you know, they don't have a choice sometimes, unfortunately. They've got standards of care they got to be careful with. But, you know, whenever possible, you probably have the least negative impact on the microbiome as a whole in a patient if you can use a botanical, right? Right. You know, and, you well, just, and if, you're going to, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're down the continuum where you've got some pretty significant gastritis and you yeah. know, if you've got, right. this is, yeah. you got to meet the patient where they are. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, that's really fascinating. It did kind of revolutionized my thinking around this since, you know, I've not been as concerned around seeing H. pylori present without virulence factors, but, you know, flip open, do I the, the, flip the page? Do I see, you know, a nice robust elastase? And, and, but it really the take home here is that we always need to treat H. pylori as far as you're concerned. And, and it's just a matter of 
what we do in our intervention. It's a time thing. Yeah, it's yeah. a time thing before you okay. develop symptoms. And those okay. symptoms are going to be determined based on chronology, yeah. location of it, yeah. how, many, how many different strains, and what are they bringing, what are they bringing to the party, right? What virulence factors are the, these other yeah. uh, strains bringing to the party, right? And so it's just a matter of time. And SIBO yeah. is probable in that first, you know, uh, initial phase also. Yeah. And, and, and SIBO, as you know, is very difficult to treat and it, it, it wreaks havoc. So, you know, that's why I say a botanical intervention at that point is, is you know, probably at minimum, you know, what you'd want to do. For me, I see any trace of H. pallor and I've had it. You get, get it the heck out of me. That I, don't, I don't see where it benefits me to have H. pylori in, in measurable amounts, right? In amounts, you know, and that, that's the key though, right? Unfortunately, we can't finish that story on is it a commensal or not because we'd have to go in and do gastric aspirates and, and biopsies, right? right? Invasive procedures to really determine that. Um, and, you know, same thing with SIBO, right? It's, it's hard to really study SIBO in depth because you'd have to go in and get a gastric aspirate yeah. to, to do so. And we've run a lot of them actually, because we have a lot of gastros that send them to us trying to figure it out, but you have to do enough to compile enough data to really figure out, you know, meaning of, of certain populations and, and uh, venom. But in yeah. your, in your opinion, obviously it's not, and I know you've looked at thousands and you've looked at more stool tests than probably anybody else in the world. <laughs> you've looked yeah. at more the comprehensive yeah. stool tests like these, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but uh, <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. All right. So that's pretty, comp that's pretty compelling. Um, yep. We've got so much to cover. I just want to say as an aside, folks, DSL has a really fabulous white paper. Um, it's just very useful, really comprehensive. And we'll link to this on the show notes. Tony is giving us a, 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 you know, really important links for you to be able to access whatever you need over there. But I, you know, for further discussion on the other aspects of the test, if we don't get to them right now, just grab that white paper and that will start your journey. Um, listen, we, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, sensitivity testing, which you were mm -hmm. involved in, that's major and, you know, using culture-based sure. technology, but, you know, you've moved beyond that. So just talk about that. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, so when you're doing, when you're talking about doing sensitivity testing for pharmaceuticals, uh, those, those um, cutoff uh, levels are well-established, right? Millions and millions of dollars spent uh, to determine you know, how much drug is needed to cause a certain amount of inhibition um, to then say that equivocates to the normal dosage would be effective against a particular organism. And, and so we understand that. that that's point one. Uh, the second part is we don't really understand how much of a, of a botanical is needed uh, because when you're looking at zone of inhibitions, there's a couple of methods you could use to test uh, um, microbes against botanicals. One would be a drop disc method where you impregnate a cotton little disc and you, you streak a plate with a with an isolated organism and and you put this 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 filter paper disc on the plate and you measure a zone of inhibition where where it doesn't allow it to grow the colonization around this uh, disc with with a uh, botanical on it an herb um, we don't really understand and there's very little uh, change in growth around that it's, it's very it's almost microscopic that people are using to suggest that this might work. So, so that's one part about botanicals that it, it's just, we don't understand, you know, we don't have a way to really measure the effectiveness in, in, in vitro. 
Yeah. Um, the the other the other part about it is a lot of these herbs that we could get our hands on come in a tincture, right? And and mm-hmm. that's antiseptic it, by nature to get it mm-hmm. in solution. Yeah, which right. that might be what's causing the zone of inhibition, right? Which is already too small compared to a pharmaceutical zone of inhibition. And so those are key in saying, okay, I, I don't feel like we could put out a good result. But the other part of it is, even working with multiple labs and running these tests myself, if you called in about a botanical with a result, a sensitivity test, and said, well, this shows berberine would be a good choice for this Klebsiella and ammonia. I would turn that around and say, yes, but it's not a sterile site. You are not treating Klebsiella and ammonia in absentee of the rest of your microbiome. The best approach to treating anything in the microbiome where you want to be the least disruptive uh, into the overall balance is to use a multi-formulated botanical product so that you are more broad spectrum in your approach to lowering the threshold of some organisms. Sure, you're going to kill some. Not yeah. a lot, but you're going to kill some. Right. Uh, but you're also going to change the metabolism of the microbiome, which is byproducts that it's producing and, and cell division, et cetera. And you're going to have the opportunity to allow the normal flora to overgrow the organism, which is another key thing about thinking about the microbiome, the yeah. GI tract when you're treating yeah. something there. You get a urinary tract infection, the, whatever bugs found there, that's probably the only bug there, right? Because it's a sterile site normally. And uh, so when, when you get a, when you get a, a metabolite of a drug that can be delivered there, it's going to kill it all. Mm-hmm. When you treat an organism in your GI tract, especially in a colon, do you honestly think that 10 days on a pharmaceutical wipes out that population of that target organism? It doesn't. It lowers the threshold enough that symptoms may be reduced and that you kill off enough of that population that your normal flora overgrows it to finally get it out of your microbiome as, an, as a resident. Potentially. Population. Potentially it does. Right. Potentially, I mean, right. But that's really a, it's just that mechanism. And that's with pharmaceuticals, too. I mean, yeah. it, it's, you know, you've got pounds of microbes there. It, yeah. To think that you can target one organism in absentia of the rest. Yeah. So just to put it in perspective. Um, so from that standpoint, I, I don't, we decided not to, to, put, you know, botanical sensitivities on our test uh, for that reason. Um, mm. we, number one, we don't feel we can get a, a, a fully accurate, I mean, it may be okay, but fully accurate picture of, of one bug versus one botanical. But the second part of that is I would never recommend one botanical because it might also be selective where some organisms are going to grow just like you get with pharmaceuticals. Some, if you're using oil of oregano, some organisms might be growing at a faster rate because you're suppressing other ones and you're creating your own yeah. shift in dysbiosis. Right. So a multiformulated botanical will do what's more similar to diarrhea, which is our own natural defense, right? Which right. is lower the total threshold mm-hmm. and allow your larger populations, which is generally your commensals to grow, grow through cell division at a faster rate, right? Because there's more, cell division of more organisms mean they're going to divide at a multiple higher than other things and they overgrow it. So, you know, but again, like you pointed out, there's times you need a pharmaceutical, you know, and so go to the first choice, Uh, you know, the Merck manuals are there, you know, if you have this particular bug, uh, this is one, two, and three. And um, that's where we'd suggest to go. 
Well, listen, as usual. The other thing. One, yeah, one yeah. more thing, though. Yeah, yeah, say it. Talking about pharmaceuticals. Right. We do, instead of sensitivity testing, we look at the antibiotic resistance genes. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to know if amoxicillin worked or not, the reason that organism might be resistant to amoxicillin or it wouldn't, wouldn't work in, in, in the sensitivity test is literally a genetic thing. And we can measure the gene, the SNP on the genome of the organism, just like the SNP for virulence factors or for toxin B for C. diff. It's genetic. The resistance is genetic. Yeah. So we can measure those. And so from a part, you check the box for antibiotic resistance genes. Uh, we will measure, uh, like for H. pylori, you can get them uh, phenotypic. These are the genes that are specific to H. pylori that convey resistance to a particular pharmaceutical. Uh, and you can get it as a microbiome uh, for a number of drugs um, to see if there's resistance within the microbiome. And we would suggest avoid that drug if possible, uh, regardless of whether it's for your organism, you know, target organism or not, because you're going to certainly cause shifts in microbes if there's already some resistance genes uh, in the microbiome. Right. So you may not be successful in your treatment. Yep. And or you cause something else. Yeah. There you call. Yeah. So you so you can cause some serious harm either by not successfully mm -hmm. eradicating the organism that you're trying to eradicate, or just mm -hmm. wreaking serious havoc in whatever organism, you know, is allowed to proliferate because it possesses yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's a that's a real that's useful. And I, you know, I just want to point out, Tony, you keep making these sort of big statements, you know, just mm -hmm. off the cuff over and over again in this podcast. And I know people are going to really value it. And we've got somebody who listens to it and goes through the transcription and she's going to like sweep through all of these pearls <laughs> and summarize them for <laughs> folks. So if you go to the show notes, you'll see some of these really uh, useful statements Tony's made kind of crowd together so that you can think about them and, and think about enacting some of them in clinical practice. But you know, one of the big things you just threw off the cuff was the fact that you always recommend using um, botanical combinations and not single botanical interventions. So, and, and I think you, we don't have to t circle back to it. I think you argued your rationale for that nicely. Um, but it's Good. just, you know, it caused me to pause again, because I don't always do that. Although I do tend to rotate people and, 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 you know, I'm using diet, but at any rate, it's a, it's a big thing. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're rolling towards the end of our time here. Um, I just want to uh, ask you, I guess I have two more questions. One is, I, you know, I think there's some cool surprises that you're launching. But before I do that, I want to actually I have three questions. So one is we didn't, we didn't have a chance in this conversation to cover the entire test. And so I just want to ask you about that. Um, and then I want to ask you about how practitioners can further educate themselves. And then I want you to share with, with us some of the, some of the surprises coming, you know, coming our way. So those three questions. Sure. So being mindful of time, I'll, I'll, I'll try to move through here. You know, people are busy and get as much in as we can, but um, we could do this for hours for sure. I know. So, you know yeah. So the, so the GI map test was, you know, as we kind of alluded to earlier, uh, the, the type of test it is being qPCR, you know, we have to target what we're looking for uh, or we can't see it. Whereas when you do a next gen sequencing, you're kind of blasting through anything you see, 
you may or may not be able to see actually, but you know, anything that shows up, you can, you can do, you know, another advantage is being able to look at things like SNPs on the genome of microbes, which is a differentiation between the methods, right? They can't do that. And, and yet in the next gen type test. So there's some differences there, but ultimately we have selected organisms that are well known to either cause GI symptoms directly yes. or influence other diseases um, and other symptoms, extraintestinal symptoms, uh, you know, whether or not they produce LPS and, and contribute to permeability or other other issues with LPS. So we've made a very, very specific, uh, you know, selection of organisms. And in fact, you know, in, in when we started, we were on multiplex PCR and we had a pretty good profile. Uh, when we moved to this new technology platform, uh, we upgraded the test. We added like 22 more markers to it, um, you know, which included, you know, some more protozoa uh, and um, some worms, um, and some other uh, autoimmune triggering organisms like MAP uh, has been added. Um, so it's an evolving test, you know, and, but they are, the organisms we're looking for and, and the markers and the other GI health markers we're measuring are, are specific, they're thoughtful, right? We put yeah. the thought and design into it. It's so always geared could, towards yeah. clinical utility. Like that's always your bottom it is. question, it, And it's right? meant for the patient, yeah, yeah, exactly. It is clinical utility and research driven too you know there's a lot of things we can measure uh but if we don't know if they have a direct you know like you said clinical utility impact uh on, on the patient or or, or the host uh, then then we're not looking for it this is this, this test is meant to be used in a certain way and you know there's other tests you could do for other things and you know we never try to say yeah everybody should just get a gi map i mean you know obviously a lot of patients would would benefit from running it, but use it on the right patient, you know, and patients limit funds too. We never say, uh, you know, always run one, you know, what, what do you need to do if they're coming in with women's health problems? And, you know, you're not starting with a GI map always. It might be part of something you had based on some of the symptoms. So it's clinical utility. So the test is built for clinical utility and we hope our practitioners use it in the proper way so that they, you know, they have results that they can impact their patient with. Right. Well, to that right. end, Tony, what about how, you know further education? So education is always it. I mean, we're in a you know we have a much different test than than all of our competitors, right? So we spend a lot of time on on the phones. In fact, we have more uh, clinical educators on staff than we do customer service reps, right? Um, so there's a lot of education process that goes along with the test, which you know we of course offer. Um, 30 minute consults if somebody needs to uh, and that's always a good idea with early use um, uh, adoption of the test but certainly if you're on our website uh, which is diagnosticsolutionslab.com and you go to the, the top ribbon you see clinicians uh, click that and go down to learning that'll take you to our learning center and there there are you know articles there are uh, webinars you know, previously recorded webinars um, that you can utilize. There's the white paper you mentioned earlier, which is a, a very well documented um, yeah. uh, publication by 130, 120 something uh, um, uh, literature sites. But also, we put out an interpretive guide now that you'll see on oh, the right hand pane there that, that summarizes a lot of stuff and puts it in perspective. Okay. And I would point out there's a really good webinar talking about microbiome and, and the differences and stuff. There's some patterns to note even on our test that, that are key. And we did a webinar um, a couple months ago 
And, uh, and it's really understanding different, the pattern analysis, right? There are yeah. patients who come up with, with uh, insufficiency dysbiosis. That's well established in the literature, but it's also a pattern we see in our test, and we can, we'll help you walk through that, um, versus inflammatory dysbiosis, where there's much more inflammation induced based on certain organisms and populations there. And then digestive dysfunction dysbiosis. So there's a webinar on that. And if you click on that webinar, Dr. Tom Fabian did it. Uh, as you scroll down, you'll see a, a, a hot link there. There's a compendium piece that you can print out that has four, it's like a four-page piece that mm -hmm. tells you which organisms belong to which groups that influence which of those three main patterns. So the Learning Center will be your, your, your place to go to get a basis. And then certainly, uh, you know, we're always, you know, producing new webinars and new pieces and uh, this podcast would be one thing, but the clinical consultations, you know, we, we love to speak to our practitioners and, and get feedback and help them understand our test. That's fabulous. All right. Well, listen, any of those links that we can put on the show notes to guide people over to the education center and all of that content you've just mentioned is great. And I'll just make sure that we circle back with your team and get that. Um, yeah. And yeah. then finally, okay. You know, 30 seconds. What's next for DSL? Well, kind of the cat's out of the bag already. We, we're working on a, uh, a SNPs panel, a human SNPs, right? Um, uh -huh. Kind of like a 23andMe on steroids, but it's really meant for the clinician too. Um, so we have, we have a, a SNPs panel that's, you know, more of a broad SNPs panel rather than measuring just, you know, 10 or 20 SNPs in a, in a key area. Um, we're going to be measuring over 9,000, almost a million SNPs, but we're, we're developing and licensed and developing software that will help us with interpretation. Ultimately, you can measure a million SNPs, but, you know, about 5,200 of them have really actionable uh, consequence for a patient. But still, it's 5,200 SNPs that you would look at and go, what do I do with this? So um, the panel name will be the Genomic Insights, and uh, we don't have an exact launch date set. Um, but uh, we're, we're close to finishing up the uh, interface that uh, uh, will power this, this test and make it a lot easier to bridge the gap of, of understanding SNPs and be able to use all 900,000 million of them, you know, if need be. <laughs> but, you know, but really being able to plate that information in such a way yeah, that yeah. it's usable. Right. But, but it's also inclusive. If you just run a cardiogenomics panel with somebody, a cardio you know, a panel, most of the time you're looking at 10 to maybe tops 20 SNPs, right. but you're missing a whole lot more of the SNPs right. that still belong in that category um, based on their methodology. So we're not limited by methodology yet again, right? That's our thing. We, 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 technology is, is, is key, but also being able to deliver this information in such a way that the newer practitioner to SNPs can utilize it. So we're layering in the use of this interface in such a way that it meets the clinician where they are, but they can keep going back and learning more on a particular patient all the time. If a patient comes in, you know, with, with, if your practice is women's health most often and you click on estrogen genomics and you want to look at methylation and detox, you can look at all those and just deal with that on this visit, this encounter. But then they have something else happen to them down the road and they come back to see you a year later you still be able to go back in and look at their SNPs and say, oh, well, now I really need to look at cardiovascular. And, oh, their doctor's putting them on something else. Let me look at their PGX, you know, pharmacogenomics. You can dig right back into the same patient. Mm -hmm. that, is, that, but, that is cool. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Finish that yeah. thought. 
Yeah, no, but it, but it's but it's it's um, it's it's put together in such a way that there's a lot of learning there, and there's a lot of tools for learning. And if you really want to dig in deep on a particular SNP, it'll take you right out to the databases, right? Or, or you can just read our synopsis and and the patient-centric synopsis uh, of a particular SNP and the impact. But it also kind of directs the you know which which uh, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, which you know herbs, which supplements which diets might impact your patient on a long-term basis, right? There's some lifestyle modifications that are needed when you find out what your SNPs are. Uh, so it includes all that. So it's, it's going to be great. And we're hoping to bridge the gap between a, uh, a, a 23andMe a type test or having to take a big data file loaded up into Prometheus uh, yeah, and try to figure out what's going on and curate a report that takes you an hour to do. We, right. you know, that's the problem. That's, that's solving the problem. And, and if I said one thing I, I like and w what I usually excel at is figuring that out, because if I can figure that out, then we right. can take care of more patients, right? Because now everybody can adopt the technology faster. That's so, right. That's right. So just make, it. again, making, creating tools that are clinician friendly. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And tests that are clinically relevant and, and, yeah. and tools that are clinician friendly. Uh, that's, that's my thing. That's what I like. And, um, if we do that, then we have a great business, right, too? So it's a win-win-win. All right, Tony Hoffman. Listen, it was great to be able to catch up with you today. It's been a long time. And just thanks so much for sharing your brilliance with us on New Frontiers. Oh, well, I mean, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Kara. It's been Absolutely. great. Absolutely.